So let's dive in. Chapter 7, verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So that tells us where the message was given. It was given at the temple in one of its gates. We also have a pretty good idea of when the message was given. If you glance forward or you can just listen uh, to Jeremiah 26, there's a parallel passage. There's a similar sermon recorded with a few differences, and one of the differences is chapter, 6, 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, and, and so forth. And so if we assume that these are different uh, records of a, the same or similar message, then we can date it. Jehoiakim ascended the throne in 608 BC, so that would be the earliest that this could have been given. Babylon's first invasion, the beginning of the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecies, happens in 605 BC, and it's not mentioned in this sermon, so it most likely hasn't happened yet. So that dates the message we're looking at tonight between 608 and 605 BC, after, after Josiah has been killed, but before the invasion of the Babylonians. And all of that together gives us a clue as to why the Lord has Jeremiah speaking these words. Because what's going on during this time? Well, the Assyrian Empire had just fallen to the Babylonians. Josiah had just died in battle at the hands of the Egyptians. The Egyptians, for the moment, were in control of Judah. Appointing Jehoiakim to the throne was their idea. And a showdown between Egypt and Babylon was looming. So in times like that, times not so different than the times that we're living in, what do people want? They want security. They want stability. They want something that will give them some measure of reassurance, something to hold on to, something to cling to. And if you're Judah, what do you turn to? Well, you wish the answer was the true and living God. But it turns out what they chose to grasp and, and, and cling to was the temple of the Lord, the house of the true and living God, and not God himself. They clung to a belief that God would surely turn back any attack against them. Why? Because in the temple he dwelt among them. So it gets, it's against this backdrop if we get back to chapter 7, that the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim these things. Some scholars like to speculate exactly which gate would he have been standing at. And, and there, there's some basis to say more likely this one than that one, but we don't know for sure. There are also scholars that are really invested in the idea that this message was given on one of the mandatory feast days, one of the, the days that all able-bodied Jews were, were expected to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem and worship at the temple so that the audience would be as expansive as possible. And I, and I, and I, I can follow the logic but we don't see that definitively stated in Scripture. That's speculation. So let's stick to the word and let's read verse 3. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Sounds like, here and, and in some verses that are going to follow, something that we might read in Deuteronomy. If you do this, I'll do that. If you obey, I'll bless. Deuteronomy 7, you don't have to turn there. It shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And, 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 and the Lord goes on from there. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. It's similar, right? Similar content, similar tone. And what follows back in Jeremiah is similar as well. Do not trust in these lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. It almost sounds like Micah 6, 8, doesn't it? What does the Lord require of a man? Practice justice, love mercy, walk humbly. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's very, very similar. And, and that shouldn't surprise us. God's demands, God's commandments to Israel were, were consistent over the centuries. Practice judgment, uh, justice uh, uh, amongst yourselves. Love mercy. Stop exploiting the weak. Don't take advantage of the foreigner. Stop being violent to one another. Walk humbly. Don't worship things that aren't God. Don't love things that God hates. There's nothing new there. It's substantively the same thing that God gave the people at Mount Sinai, right? The covenant that God made with them. The covenant that he reaffirmed with them and they reaffirmed with him right before they entered the land at the end of Deuteronomy. The problem is the Judeans were only half remembering the deal. They liked, oh, we're God's chosen people, Exodus 19. God has given us this land forever, Genesis 15. And, and, and the, the throne of David will endure forever, 2 Samuel 7. So from all of that, they concluded, well, God has made us, for all intents and purposes, invulnerable. Micah, again, Micah 3.11, decades earlier, God said, you lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Because God dwelt among them in the temple. But they forgot everything that they were obligated to do. They remembered all of God's promises to them. They forgot their obligations to the Lord. And they clearly learned the wrong lessons from the Assyrians. When Israel fell in 722 B.C., when Judah all but fell in 701 B.C., they concluded, wrongly, it was the temple that was protecting us. What do we have that Israel didn't have? The temple. We're in the south where Jerusalem is. We have the temple. Israel didn't have the temple. And all of the fortified cities of Judah fell before the Assyrian army, but not Jerusalem. What differentiates Jerusalem? The temple. 
So we're impervious. Because after all, God promised us that the land would be our everlasting possession. He did. But while God said ownership of the land was irrevocable, possession of the land, God said from the beginning, was conditional. Enjoyment of the land depended on their obedience, depended on them practicing justice, not oppressing the weak, not shedding innocent blood, not chasing after other gods. Everything we read in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but God's people had lost that. They were no longer, for practical purposes, the chosen people of God. They were the self-righteous people of the temple. And Jeremiah 7, verse 9, God calls them on it. Back up to verse 8. Behold, will you trust in lying words that cannot profit? Verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come after me and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we're delivered to do all these abominations? You're going to do all of these things and then call yourself my followers. You're going to trample on my commandments. He called out six out of the ten right there, one after the other. The others were obviously implied. You think you can, all, you can do all that and then hide in the shadow of the temple. No, the, the temple, you've got it wrong, God is saying. The temple isn't purifying you. You're corrupting the temple. Had lunch with somebody today, and we were talking about how Jesus ate with sinners, tax collectors, partiers. But there was no confusion ever about which way the influence was flowing. When Jesus sat among them, he was influencing them toward God. Sometimes we hang out with unbelieving friends. And we say, well, this is what Jesus did. But there's a question. Are, are we evangelizing them or are they evangelizing us? Do they walk away less confident in their worldly ways because they've spent time with a Christ follower? Or do we, spend, or do we walk away less confident in following Christ because we've spent time in the world? God is making a similar point. He's saying time at the temple... I'm worshiping at the temple. These things should, should be reminding you of the God of the temple. Instead, you're bringing your pagan rituals, your ungodly behavior, and you're corrupting the temple. You're making it, God says, a hiding place. Did we get to that verse? Nope. But now, well, we must have. As this house which is called, yeah, we did. As this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eye. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. God says, you're making my temple a hiding place for robbers and thieves. That's a pretty strong accusation. It gets even stronger when you realize that was what a lot of pagan shrines were used for. 
Many pagan shrines were, were places that extended sanctuary for criminals or political rebels. And so God is saying, in effect, my temple is no better than a temple to Baal or Moloch. Not because of me, but because of you. So picture Jeremiah's listeners. They've come to worship at the temple. They've come to worship by their definition, at least in the temple. And Jeremiah is welcoming there, saying, Hey, welcome, you bunch of liars and hypocrites, idolaters. Man, give the guy points for boldness, right? But he's not done. He's just getting warmed up. But now go to the place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you've done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you didn't answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I'll cast you out of my sight, as I've cast out all of your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. You're convinced Jeremiah says that the temple is some sort of rabbit's foot, some sort of lucky horseshoe, some kind of good luck charm. But what does history tell us? What about Shiloh, the Holy Spirit asks through Jeremiah? What's significant about Shiloh? Shiloh was the first permanent location of the Ark and the Tabernacle when the children of Israel entered Canaan. The tabernacle was meant to be portable, but when they first entered Canaan, they, they made camp and they established a, a, a permanent place to worship God of the tabernacle. It was the first worship center. And that's where the tabernacle was when the land was apportioned out to the various tribes. That's where the tabernacle was when Samuel the prophet uh, or, or ordained Saul and so forth. Remember what happened the Holy Spirit is asking. It was destroyed by the Philistines in 1050 B.C. Point being, if the presence of God in the tabernacle didn't make Shiloh impervious, by what logic would the presence of God in the temple make Jerusalem impervious? Whatever logic it is, it's bad logic. I'm God, he reminds them. And I warned you again and again, verse 13. And you ignored me again and again. So it's time to judge my people again, the way that I judged Israel. I'm going to judge you the way that I judged Ephraim, idiomatically a way of speaking of Israel. Now verse 16, there's a little bit of a pause. <coughs> We've got like a four-verse or so parenthesis where God speaks to Jeremiah for Jeremiah. Okay, hang on, Jer. Everything that you just shared, yeah, that was for them. Now I'm just going to talk to you. Because I, I want you to know a few things. Therefore, do not pray for this people, Jeremiah, nor lift up a cry or prayer or prayer. Uh, let's start again. Do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Well, that's heavy. <laughs> do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough. Why? To make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? 
Don't pray for these this people. That's heavy. What is God saying? He's saying they're past my mercy. They've hardened their hearts against me. There's no possible future where they return to me. That's heavy. I had someone quote this verse to me once upon a time as justification for their condemning someone. They said, see, there are times when people harden their hearts and there's no salvation for them and and all that's left to do is to speak condemnation over them and and not pray for mercy or, or their repentance. It's just time to say, God, it's time to send them to hell. Yeah, couldn't disagree more. We don't get to do that. We aren't equipped for that. We aren't equipped to judge the heart. There is a point of no return. We aren't able to perceive where it is. And when we try, we're almost always wrong, aren't we? I'm sure there were people looking at me, looking at the life that I was living, who thought that I was way past the point of no return. And I've served in ministry with people that I knew when they were younger that I was positive, would never be saved. I spent time with one of them a a week ago. He's a pastor now. I watched him growing up. He was a punk. Had no interest in the things of God, and I was utterly convinced he never would. And God delights in showing us wrong, doesn't he? We don't know the point of no return, but there is one. And the only way we know is when God says, which he does in verse 16, had Judas crossed it. Judah's on the wrong side of the line. If you doubt, Jeremiah, look at their worship. They're making cakes for the queen of heaven, probably Ishtar. They're pouring out drink offerings for other gods. God's not saying, hey, there's your test. That's how you know they've gone too far. He's just saying, Jeremiah, if you have any doubt, you can see the fruit of their unbelief. And I'm telling you what it means. They really are past the point of no return. Because if they think about me at all, they would think, oh, well, God God probably doesn't like this, but clearly they don't care because they're doing it anyway. The reality is they're only hurting themselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, verse 20, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and will not be quenched. They're going to get what they think that they want. They're going to get a world where they're not my friends. Have it your way, says God. Verse 21, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. That sounds weird to us until we remember that the burnt offering was supposed to be consumed in the fire. That was supposed to be wholly consumed on the altar rather than some of the altar offerings where they were apportioned out and 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 you know this group got this piece of the the offering and this group got that part and the lord got that part the burnt offering was to be entirely consumed and god says why why bother you might as well just take it off the altar and eat it because it doesn't mean anything to you it doesn't mean anything to you it doesn't mean anything to me Verse 22, for I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I'll be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you that it might be well with you. 
that sounds odd because we read verse 22 and we say, wait a minute. Like, I read a lot of verses in Leviticus all about offerings and Exodus. And I mean, there was verse after verse. God did instruct their fathers about offerings. He did. But the point of those instructions, God is saying in verse 23, it was never the sacrifice that was important. It was never the sacrifice for the sake of the sacrifice. It was always the obedience that the sacrifice represented. You can't go obeying the action and ignore the heart, God is saying. You can't follow the ritual and blow off the relationship. It doesn't work. But that's what God is saying that they've done. That's what they had done, verse 24. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward, not forward. They're less close to God less obedient to God, less in love with God, less aligned with God than they were when they left Egypt. And again, it's not like they didn't know. And, and, and verse 25, is this, is this God speaking to Judah or is this God speaking to Jeremiah? I think it could be either way. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I've even sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Just an idiom that says, I worked really hard to get the word in front of you. Daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline the ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. It was like the more prophets that I sent, the more hardened their hearts became. They forgot that the sacrifice was an expression of faith and not a substitute for faith. They forgot that the sacrifice was an expression of faith and not a substitute for faith. They made up their minds, God says, verse 26. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them. They will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. There's a ministry. Hey, Jeremiah, you're going to preach to deaf ears and hard hearts. You're going to preach your face off and it's going to bounce right off of them. I'm going to give you words that are going to burn like fire within you and no one's going to listen. How discouraging. And, and of course, there was a purpose. Through Jeremiah's ministry, none in Judah could stand before the Lord and say, we didn't know. No one told us we weren't warned. But I'm sure that was not always of much consolation to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, they're not going to listen, but tell them anyway. Verse 28. So you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouths. Notice God uses the word nation. That's how he re usually refers to the Gentiles, the nations. Just a sign of the, the, the low esteem, the contempt the, that God has for Judah in Jeremiah's day. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Commentators quibble, cut off your hair. Is that just a generic symbol of mourning or is God saying something more specific? Is God saying, hey, as a Nazarite would cut off their hair, 
when the vow was broken, and part of a Nazarite vow, we're actually going to talk about this on Sunday, you weren't allowed to touch anything dead, anything unclean. You weren't to partake of the, the fruit of the vine. Think Samson. We're going to see Paul possibly participate in a Nazarite vow on Sunday. Is, is God saying, you might as well cut off your hair because you're dead to me? Because you are unclean? I, I don't think that's clear. I think it's a provocative suggestion. I don't think we can definitively conclude that. Either way, whether it's, it's specifically that or God just generally, hey, you put on your mourning clothes because you're dead to me. Either way, it's a scathing indictment. Either way, lament on desolate heights. God is saying, go where you've offered false worship and remember. But, but, but not only in, in, the, in the desolate heights, Verse 30, the children of Judah have done evil in my sights everywhere, says the Lord. They've set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. They've set up idols in the temple, probably under Manasseh, <coughs> but apparently they're, they're either back there since Josiah was killed or, or God is pointing at the length of time that they were there. But the same temple that you're trusting in to protect you, this temple that you're invoking in your defense, has been given over to idol worship. How does that work, God says? Not to mention the fact, verse 31, they've built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valleys of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart ever. You were worshiping idols in my temple and you set up other altars to practice child sacrifice, which I never commanded, I never wanted, I always found abhorrent. And Josiah, we know Josiah ended that. Second Kings 23 tells us that. So again, either something that had restarted or God is pointing at the length of time that that practice endured. Either way, therefore, behold, God says, the days are coming when it will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Why? For they'll bury in Tophet until there's no room. What did God just say? They're going to pile the corpses so high in the valley that they'll reach the high places. Verse 33, the corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And then I'll cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. Prophecy buffs among you might look at birds and corpses and say, oh, 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 Revelation 19, except the geography doesn't work. So is, is God's judgment consistent? Is, is there a connotative resonance? Okay, sure. But, but you can't say, oh, 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 long-term prophecy because the geography doesn't work. It's still staggering. Especially if, if you remember to the Jewish mind, leaving a body unburied was unthinkable. It was, it, was, it was more than a dishonor. To leave a body unburied was, was, to, 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 was tantamount to a body being accursed. And, and God anticipates this. And he knows that his, his listeners, Jeremiah's listeners, are going to respond with revulsion. That can't be what God is saying. 
That can't possibly be what he means. <laughs> Actually, at that time, says the Lord, chapter 8, verse 1, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of its priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they've loved and they have served and after which they have walked, which they've sought and which they've worshipped. Not only are the dead going to fall unburied in the day of God's judgment, those buried, those buried for decades, are going to be dug up and their bones scattered beneath the sun and the moon, beneath the sun and moon gods that Judah worshipped. Still verse 2, they shall be like they shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. The death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family, who remain in all the places where I've driven them, says the Lord of hosts. If that wasn't enough, the dead being unburied, the corpses being stacked from the valleys to the high places, corpses being dug up and their bones spread so that they would be accursed beneath the false gods, God says, if that's not enough, those who survive are going to wish that they were among the dead. Horrific stuff. And I'm tempted to say, let's just leave it there. and Let's just close the Bible, because that's awful, and there's ice cream waiting, but... I'm committing pastoral malpractice so I don't at least nod in the direction of application. And this evening, like most evenings so far in Jeremiah, all we kind of have to do is nod. All we have to do is kind of, you know, cock our heads. Because the application just falls off the page. What's the easy question and the important question that we need to ask ourselves coming out of Jeremiah 7? What's our temple? What are we hanging on? What are we clinging to? What are we expecting to protect us, sanctify us, make us righteous? It should be God. But what are the godly-sounding things that we can grasp in his place? There's a lot of candidates. A lot of spiritual-sounding substitutes for an active, vital relationship with God, probably as many different options as there are people in this room. But we can call out a few easy ones family. God blessed me with a family. My wife is my first ministry. It's, it's godly, it's biblical to prioritize my family. That's true, it's mostly true. Yes, we're to prioritize our families, but not above the Lord. And I cringe a little bit when people say, my wife is my first ministry, because I know what they mean, but in reality, my wife is my second ministry. God himself is my first ministry. And if I get those turned around, I'm in trouble. And so is she, by the way. Are we to love our families? Sure. In obedience to God. In the power of God, in the love of God. Not as a substitute for God. Job. Got to work. Man don't work, man don't eat. Man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. Okay. But if I work 
to the point where my career, my job takes the place of God. And I'm always thinking about work and talking about work and organizing my life around work and, and my priorities are, are based on work. And work pushes God off of the throne. Am I not, practically speaking, an infidel? Am I not a functioning infidel? Even though I'm providing for my family. Ministry. Same answer. God called me to ministry. That's awesome. He calls us to ministry because he wants to be with us in ministry. He doesn't want us to hide from him in ministry. But ministry is a wonderful idol. It's probably the, 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 the single best way to crowd God out of our lives while feeling really spiritual in the process. Bible study. Study of God's word. Well, what? Okay, Patrick, I was, I was with you up until that last one. The Bible is God's word. That's true. It's not God. And we can get so enraptured studying this book that we forget we know the author. And we forget the point of studying the Bible is not just knowing the Bible, but living the Bible and drawing close to God who wrote the Bible. Knowing him through the Bible and becoming like him. We could keep going. We should keep going. But in the privacy of our own hearts. And whatever we cry out, the temple, the temple, the temple, whatever our temple is, whatever our substitute for real, vital relationship with God is. Let's repent of it tonight. Let's leave it here tonight. And let's close our time together worshiping God and committing ourselves to allowing him to be who he wants to be to us and letting him have the place that he wants to have in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's hard to read. These words of wrath and judgment are bleak and dark, but they're necessary, Lord. We need to at least glimpse what we've been saved from so that we can really rejoice in what we've been saved to. Our eyes are on you tonight, Lord. Our rescuer, our redeemer, our father and our shepherd, the lover of our souls the giver of grace, our constant companion, closer than a brother, our bridegroom. Have your way with us, Lord.
speak strong words when we need them, encouraging words when we need them. Draw us close to you. Because that's the place of blessing and joy.